You can see from the bulletin that our focus is going to be really on verses 1 and 2, but we'll read farther to get the context. Before we read, I just wanted to consider some few things from Psalm 119 to help us pray before turning to the scriptures. And just thinking, what are we going to do right now? And there's something we're going to do now. There's something that we'll have to do after. And then there's something that we are begging for God to do. And right now, from Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So we will turn to the scriptures. We will seek to unfold it, to explain it, because we believe it's through God's word that we come to have understanding. But that's not enough, because then he says in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And then 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So he says, not only does your word give understanding, I gain understanding because I meditate on your word, and then I keep your word. So right now we will seek to unfold God's word, but as we leave, what will we seek to do? We will seek to meditate on his word, to keep his word, because we believe by that means we will gain understanding. And yet we can do all of that and it be utterly meaningless because we need God to then grant us understanding by these means. And so that is what he then says in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May God grant us the understanding we need to learn his commandments, to keep his commandments, so that we might know him and glorify him. And to that end, let's turn to him and pray. Father, we know that we are wholly dependent upon you. That unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Unless you guard the city, we keep awake in vain. It is vain for us to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for you give to your beloved, even in his sleep. So may by your Spirit you grant us the understanding we need, for we do long to know you, how we look forward to that day when we will be saved to sin no more when we will behold your glory perfectly in the face of your Son. And in seeing him, we will be changed to be like him. Grant us even now the understanding to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in our knowledge of you. Oh, to be fully pleasing to you, to have the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight that we would honor you, not only externally, but internally. Help us, we ask, by your Spirit and for your glory. Amen. All right, so Titus chapter 3, a brief overview of what Paul has been speaking about, what he wrote about in chapters 1 and 2. If you have the ESV, that's what I have Those are the headings I'll go from. So you can see verses 1 
through 4 of chapter 1 is entitled Greeting. Here Paul simply reminds Titus of his, his calling as God's servant and his appointment as an apostle, as well as what ministry he had been given. And then he, he greets Titus, he addresses him as his child. The next section is qualifications for elders. In verses 5 through 9, he reminds Titus that he left him in this, on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every town. And he then gives some direction as to what qualifications a man must possess if he is to be an elder. The reason, one of the reasons he was to do this, he describes in verses 10 through 16... And it is because there were many who were not godly men. There were, these men were disobedient. These men were teaching heresy. And so Titus was to appoint godly men who would be able to instruct the people in what is truth, as well as to rebuke those men who were strained from the truth. In contrast to these false teachers, going on now to chapter 2, Titus was to teach sound doctrine. He was to teach the truth about who God is and what he had done, but not merely that, but how those truths then should impact the way we live our lives. And so he was to address older men, younger men, older women, younger women. He was to teach bond servants how they were to live. In all of these different areas of life, Titus was to teach the people what does it look like to live our lives in a way that honors the Lord in light of what he has done for us. Again, he then tells him why he was to do this in verses 11 to 14, and it is because God's grace had appeared. The salvation of God had come. So it wasn't merely that Titus was to tell the people, do all these nice things. These are the, way, these are the types of things you were to do. No, he was to say, this is the type of life you're to live in light of what God has done for you. In verse 15, these were the things he was to declare, he was to exhort, he was to rebuke, and he was not to allow anyone to disregard him. That then brings us to our our passage here in chapter 3, and we'll go ahead and just read to the end of the letter. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul Wrote, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, 
genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you. So our passage this morning is a continuation of the things that Paul was discussed in chapter 2 when he was telling Titus, these are the things you're to teach the people. You're to teach them what accords with sound doctrine, and you're to do that because of the fact that God's grace has appeared. So we'll, we'll look again at this again at the end, but right at the beginning, we just want to notice how these verses that we're going to look at is we could think of it sandwiched between the gospel. So you have the gospel leading into these verses, and you have the gospel flowing from these verses. The gospel is that which these verses depend upon, and out of which these verses flow. And why we need to see that is because if we were to simply look at the commands we will look at and separate them from the gospel, what would we leave thinking? We would leave thinking Christianity is about trying a little harder to be a better person. So you would leave and someone would ask you, what was the message about today? Well, it was just, you know, be a nice person, try to do some nice things, just, just give it your best shot and God will accept you in the end. But when we notice the context, we'll see, no, that is not what these verses about, are about at all. Rather, these verses are about living in light of what God has done for us in Christ. They are a call to gospel living. It's a call to remember what God has done for us and in light of what he has done and by the strength that he supplies us then to live in this way. So notice how the gospel is, is before these verses. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then we read this, how the gospel is what uh, comes after these verses as well. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, but when the goodness, chapter 3, verse 4, sorry, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So we have the gospel before, we have the gospel after. We have the grace of God appearing, and we have the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appearing. He saved us, and in light of that, this is now how we are to live our lives. So we have to remember that, lest we miss the point. Now to these verses that, that we're going to look at. Verse 1, chapter 3 Paul begins by saying, remind them, which shows that these things that Titus was to teach the people was something that they already knew, something they had already been taught. 
But Titus was to remind them of things that they already knew. Why? We just consider two things about why he was to remind them. The first is that as a people, we are prone to forget. And we see that emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy as the people are getting ready to enter the promised land and Moses gives them these messages imploring with them. And what are some of the things that he implores them to do? It is to remember not to forget to take care lest you forget what the Lord has done for you. Just one example is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So Moses told the people, Be careful. Don't lose sight of what God has done. And it's the same with us. It's that we need to constantly be reminded of what God has done for us because we so easily forget. But not just that. We see that by being reminded of things, we're actually uh, exhorted, spurred on to, to grow in our fervency for the Lord. So not only does being reminded help us not to forget, being, remind, uh, being reminded helps us to grow in our faith. And we see this in Second Peter where Peter, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he reminds them of, of what they've been given, how God's power has given them all that they need for life and godliness. And then he says, in light of that, then this is what you're to do. You're to supplement your faith with all of these different qualities. And he says, though, in verse 12, Therefore I intend all you, always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter says, just like in Deuteronomy, I'm reminding you so that you will remember, so that you won't forget, so that after I die, if someone were to ask you, at any moment you could recall and tell them, yeah, this is what Peter told us. But he also says that he's seeking to do what? He's seeking to stir them up by way of reminder, to increase their fervency by reminding them of these truths, reminding them of what they already knew. Now we need to hear that because what is our tendency? When someone tells us something we know or says, let me remind you, what do we do? It seems like we automatically put up this wall and say, if I know this, I don't have to listen. We either roll our eyes externally or we roll the eyes of our heart thinking, I know that already. I did a children's lesson in Iwana one year, and I was teaching about how Jesus walked on the water, and one little boy blurted out just as I was going to start, I know that already. <laughs> and being adults, we might not be quite as untamed, but it's, it, it's easy to come to a passage like this and to say in our heart, what? I know that already. And you want to know what Paul's word to Titus would be? If Titus was to come to say, hey Paul, 
My people know this already. He would say, yeah, that's the point. The point is they know it, but the point is they need to be constantly reminded of it so that they won't forget and so that they will be stirred up by way of reminder. And so for those of us here today who know this, who perhaps have memorized it or taught it, and we're saying, I know that, then Paul's word is, yeah, that's the point. But because we know it, we need to be reminded of it so that we might not forget and so that we might be stirred up by remembering it. So what was he to remind them? First thing was to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To, to be submissive, to submit, is to subordinate ourselves to the authority of another. To willingly place ourselves under this authority that God has established. And we see Paul further explaining this in Romans 13. And we see Peter explaining it in 1 Peter 2. And in both of those places, Paul and Peter exhort those to whom they're writing to be subject to the governing authorities, to be subject to every human institution. And they were to do this regardless of whether they liked the authorities, regardless of whether they felt like it or wanted to submit, but they were to submit for the Lord's sake. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says in verse 13, Be subject, why? For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So what does Peter say? He says, submit yourself to these, these human institutions. Why? For the Lord's sake. And in Romans 13, Paul says that you're to do it because God is actually the one who appointed every single authority. That there's no authority in the world that has not been appointed by God. So we're to submit ourselves to these authorities for the Lord's sake. Not because we like the authority, not because we think they're doing a good job, not because they are the same political party, but we're to do it for the Lord's sake. And often at this point, what we do is that we rightly qualify this by saying, yes, but not in cases when we are being commanded to go against God's will. And so we might point to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or we might point to the apostles in the book of Acts who did not submit to the, the authority because of the fact that they were commanding them to do something that was against God's will. And though we should rightly make that qualification, we need to be careful that we're not just using that as an excuse to justify our own sinfulness in not wanting to submit. When we are making that qualification, we need to really ask ourselves, am I using this 
because I truly am bound by God's Word not to obey? Or is it merely an emotional reaction to the fact that I don't like this authority or I don't like what they're commanding me to do, and therefore I'm using this to justify my actions? And in the same way, sort of a different way to argue, it's sometimes the fact that if the government is commanding us to do something not within the bounds for which God appointed them, then we don't have to obey. We don't have to submit. So it's not saying necessarily what the government's commanding is against God's law, but they're commanding something that's outside the bounds for which God appointed them. And again, in this case, we need to ask, okay, is really what's going on in my heart that I so long to honor the Lord and because of that I cannot submit to what the government is asking me to do? Or is it simply I don't want to submit and so I'm going to use this as an excuse? We really have to look at our heart and say, Lord, what is really going on? Because again, our desire should be we want to honor the Lord. And He has commanded us to submit ourselves to the authorities. So unless they are commanding us to do something and our conscience is bound by God's Word, by His grace, we are to humbly submit to the authorities. And again, this is the, the context within Titus, the connection in, in second in 1 Peter to servants who were to submit themselves to masters who were unjust. You see in Titus, really the, the assumption is that these authorities are just like who we once were. So what types of authorities are we to be subject to? Back in Titus 3, you see in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Those are the authorities, Paul's saying, to which we're to submit. Because we ourselves were once just like them. It's easy to submit to authorities that we like, authorities that are, are kind and, and good, but it's when authorities are like that that it's very, very difficult to submit to them. So Titus said, remind them of this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Second now, what was he to remind them of? To be obedient. And here he doesn't give a specific, uh, specific authority to which we're to be obedient. So he could simply be saying again, not only are you to submit to these authorities, but you're to be obedient to them. We also see other examples in scriptures, how children are to obey parents, slaves are to obey masters. Uh, members are to obey church leaders. But in any case, the exhortation is that as God's people, as those who belong to Christ, we are to be an obedient people. We are to be known as a people who when someone asks us to do something, someone who is over us in authority, we obey them. We don't constantly argue about what it is. You can see just in chapter 2, he reminds bond servants, verse 9, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in every, everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the type of people he says that we are to be. 
And again, we can, we can qualify this in the same way by saying, well, we're to obey so long as they're not asking us to do things out of God's will. But again, looking at our heart and thinking, am I just using that as an excuse, or is it truly I am bound by God's word? How, though, when, when we're being asked to obey these authorities that are so difficult, how do we come to obey them? And that's where going back to 1 Peter really helps us to see. Because having called the people to be subject to the human institutions, he then says to servants, be subject to your masters. And he describes these masters who are not ones that are easy to submit to. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here he tells servants, servants, obey your masters. Not only the good ones, but also the ones that are difficult to obey. And he points to, to two things, two ways in which they were to do this. You can see in verse 19, he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he points to Christ. Christ who is our perfect Savior, but also He who is our perfect example. And he points to Jesus and he says, remember what Jesus did, because he is, he is this example that has been set for us. And what did he do? Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he's telling servants, servants, this is the way you can be subject to these masters, not only the good masters, but also those who are unjust. How? By being mindful of God and by entrusting yourself to Him who judges justly. When we are being asked to obey these people who are people we do not like, what are we thinking about? What's, what are we stewing on in our heart? It is typically what? Them. Those masters that we do not like, those bosses, those those leaders that we just cannot stand. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're meditating upon. That's what we're talk, constantly telling ourselves is, I can't believe they did blah, 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 blah. And if someone asks, how's it going? Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. How different would it be if instead of being focused on this person, we were mindful of God? 
that our focus was not upon this master who we cannot stand, but instead our focus was upon God, upon what he has done for us, upon what he is calling us to do. And then when these unjust things happen to us, that we're not recognized for the good, the good work that we're doing, or, or we're being accused of something that we did not do, immediately our natural sinful response is to want to justify ourselves. But Christ, against whom these accusations were brought, and there were absolutely no grounds for them, what did he do? Peter says that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How could Jesus listen to these accusations that were completely untrue and yet make no defense? It was because he knew who his father was, and he knew that his father was the perfect judge, that his father would defend him, and so he did not need to. So it was as Christ was mindful of his father and entrusted himself into his father's care that he could then humbly submit himself in this way. So if, if we, by God's grace, are to be an obedient people like what Titus was to remind the people of, how will that take place? It will take place as we're mindful of God and as we entrust ourselves into God's care. Third now, they were to be ready for every good work. So they were to be submissive, obedient, ready for every good work. How, how, do, how do we be ready for every good work? Well, in Titus, Paul commanded the people that they were to be zealous for good works, they were to be devoted to it. But a helpful connection is, is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul wrote to Timothy how in a house there's, there's these vessels, these objects that are for honorable use and for dishonorable. So you have a, uh, you have a toothbrush, and you have, I did not write this down, but, but you have a toothbrush and you have a toilet bowl brush, right? Do you want to get those two mixed up, kids? No, you don't, right? They are for specific purposes. But what would happen if you took the toilet bowl brush and you perfectly cleansed it, and instead you took your toothbrush and you went and started cleaning the toilet with it. What would happen? Now they would switch, right? Now you wouldn't want to use your toothbrush to brush your teeth. You would want to use the toilet bowl brush, as strange as that sounds. Why? Because the toilet bowl brush has been cleansed. The toothbrush has been defiled. It's now dirty. The one can no longer be used for your teeth. But the other one can because it's been cleansed. And... and Paul told Timothy, that's what it's like in a house. There's vessels for honorable use, vessels for dishonorable. But if you cleanse that which is dishonorable, it will now be ready to be used for something that's honorable. So to be ready for every good work, Paul says, by God's grace we are to cleanse ourselves from all these things that have defiled us, from all these things that have made us unclean. By nature, we are, we are toilet bowl brushes. <laughs> <laughs> but what? But God makes us clean so that we can now be used for an honorable purpose. And you think about the work of pastoral ministry. In our culture, what is seen as being that which we, what a pastor needs to be? 
He needs to be young. He needs to be cool. He needs to be this charismatic leader. He needs to have all of this great administrative skills. But the, you go to Titus chapter 1. What are the primary qualifications? The question is, is this man a godly man? So if we are wanting to do what God has called us to do and to lead and to be ready for good works, what is the primary emphasis? What is the thing that we should primarily be focused upon? Seeking after godliness. That that is how we will be ready for these good works is by cleansing ourselves from all that has defiled us by the grace of God. So, we're to be submissive, we're to be obedient, we're to be ready for these good works. Next, what does Paul say? He says, to speak evil of no one. So we're not to malign, we're not to slander, we're not to have this hateful, hurtful speech. And if you think about in our world, but even what so often happens among us as Christians... How much of our speech is, is negative compared to positive? How much of our speech is unwholesome compared to how much of our speech builds up? And it's, you know, I, I thought of this verse and I thought, wow, that is a hard verse to never speak evil of anyone. But then I thought, you know what? It's not just about what comes out of our mouth that's the problem. It's what's going on in our heart. Because Jesus described that it's from our heart that everything in our mouth flows. So what we're saying in our, with our mouth is a reflection of what's going on in our heart. So to speak evil of no one is not simply don't say that with your mouth, but don't even have that going on inside of you. Never about anyone. And surely it is here that we see the hopeless state that we are in as humanity. Because James says what? James says, James chapter 3, verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of, of reptile sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So at that point, James says, yeah, you know what? Every beast that exists, humanity has tamed. But there's one beast that they have yet to tame. The tongue. And so to, to modernize that, we could say, despite all of the advances in medicine, science, engineering, technology, education, humanity still has one conundrum. That of the tongue. Humanity has yet to tame the tongue. And how evident that is in our culture. Where on, on TV, on social media, there is nothing but this backbiting that goes on. And it is clear from that that we have a problem that we are not able to solve. And so if you are here today and you recognize that, that you see, yeah, I have this tongue that I just simply cannot tame. What you need to realize is that that tongue that you cannot tame is 
merely an indication of something that is deeper going on, that you have a deeper problem merely than your tongue. You might say, yeah, I can clean up my mouth. But the problem is you have a heart that cannot be cleaned. You may be in certain situations and you don't say the things that you will say in other situations, but that still goes on in your heart. That's the thing with, you know, it's one thing to change the the words you say when you are angry for some reason. It's a whole different thing to change what actually is going inside of our hearts. And there's a a children's song that, that talks about all these different things that God has done. It asks, uh, oh, who can, who can make the raindrops? Who can make a, a butterfly? And with each of them it says, no one but God tis true. Oh, who can make a butterfly? I know I can't. Can you? Oh, who can make a butterfly? No one but God tis true. But the last line says this. Oh, who can make our hearts clean? I'm sure I can't. Can you? Oh, who can make our hearts clean? No one but God tis true. That is true of every single one of us by nature. We have hearts that are dirty. Children, the reason why you say those things that are so hurtful is why? Because you have a dirty heart. And as adults, the reason why all that goes on on social media is why? Because we have dirty hearts. But there is one who can make our hearts clean. And so if you see that, if you see you have a bad mouth because you have a bad heart. Realize that there is one who can make your hearts clean. There is one who can cleanse you from this. That our dirty heart should make us realize that we are under God's condemnation, but there is one who came to deliver us from our sin as well as to purify us from all of that. That's what Paul says at the end of Titus 2 in verse 14, how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what was Titus to remind the people? He was to remind them to to be submissive, obedient, ready for good works, to speak evil of no one. Then this next one was he was to remind them to avoid quarreling that they were to be a people who, as far as it depended on them, they were striving after peace. We read near the end of chapter 3 how Paul told Titus, don't get involved in all of these foolish controversies. You can get so caught up in what these people are saying that you just miss the point that leads to ungodliness. There's no benefit from it. And how many foolish controversies go on on the Internet. And we can get so wrapped up in that but Paul says, don't, don't get involved in just that quarreling that takes place, that useless quarreling. There are times, as he says in chapter 1, wherein these false teachers must be silenced, that we must speak up on behalf of the truth. But at other times, these, these quarrels that go on, he says, they're just useless. It's not leading to peace. As God's people, we are to be those who are marked by peace. And then last, he says to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That as Jesus' people, we are to be those who are marked by humility and kindness. That there's not, not to be a harshness, a sharpness about us, but there's to be a gentleness. And our focus is not to be upon our own interests, but upon those of others. And 
once again, it is a command to do this with all people. Not only to those with whom it's easy to do this, but we're to do this with all people. Now, to remind ourselves again of the context in which these verses come, Paul said what? He said to submit, obey, be ready for good works, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy. But does he end it there? The sentence ends, but the passage does not. And verse 3 He tells us the reason why. Why are we to live in that way? And what does he say? He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he says, we're to do this. We're to live in this way. We're to treat these people in this way. Why? Because we ourselves were once just like those people whom we despise. Those people to whom we do not want to submit, those people to whom we we do not want to be courteous, who we have such evil, evil speech going on inside of our heart. We ourselves were once just like them. But we're different now. And why are we different? Not because we did something about it, but because God did something on our behalf, and to that we then responded. So verse 3, he says, we ourselves were once just like them, but now verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So He tells the people, this is how you're to live, because you were just once like those people, and you're different now because of the grace of God. Not because you, you, you turned over a new leaf, you tried a little harder to be nice, no, but because God saved us. He changed us from who we once were. And so we, we have to ask again this question is, is when all of this is going on, to what are we looking upon? What are we meditating? Where are our eyes focused? Are our eyes focused upon what these people are doing to us? Or even are our eyes focused upon ourselves and in, in trying to do a little better? Paul says, no, where are our eyes to be? Our eyes to be are to be upon God, upon what Christ has done for us. Because He is the one who perfectly obeyed all of these commands. He is the perfect example of these verses, but not just the perfect example. He's also our perfect Savior. He's the one who came to us when we were in that state, when we were in that state of rebellion, in that state of death in that state of enslavement. Then He came to us. Then He he showed His kindness towards us, or Philippians 2. It's then He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not looking to His own interests, but to the interests of others. And so it's as we lift our eyes to Him, as we have our eyes focused upon Him, as we behold His glory, 
that then we will be transformed more and more into His likeness. It's as we see His submission to the will of the Father, His submission to these evil rulers, as we see His obedience, as we see the fact that He never spoke evil, not even in His heart. And as we see the fact that His grace appeared, He gave His life for us, that by His grace we will then be transformed more and more into His likeness. So Jesus is the one who is perfect in all of these things, and may our Father grant us grace to look to Him, to see Him, and so to become more and more like Him. Let's pray together. Father, we confess how often we fall short of these commands. We thank you for the fact that your love for us does not depend upon our obedience because you loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet in rebellion against you, you gave your son to deliver us, to deliver us out of our sin so that we might walk in newness of life. How we long to do that. How we long to be a people who are submissive, who are kind, who never have any evil speech. Please grant us grace to behold your glory more and more in the face of your Son. And in beholding him, we would be transformed to be like him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.